Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language of this podcast are of an adult nature and can be disturbing, frightening, and even in some cases, offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hey, there is very, very adult content ahead and you have been warned. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. As always, I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. There will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, Sit back, grab your favorite drink, relax, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we're going to be jumping back into some travel-themed stories as I had a ton of emails letting me know that you really liked learning about new places. And as we all know, I aim to please. That's me, people pleaser extraordinaire. (laughs) All right, maybe not. Anyways, enough of that. As always, we will be playing our drinking game, but please remember the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight because I'm such a loser. I know. Anyways, and since today's story is going to be from Deutschland, we must think Oktoberfest. So tonight's libation is going to be, that's right, you guessed it, bear. Have some bear. (laughs) Now, if you want to be true to your German roots, then you need to get a very heady lager. But really, it's your choice. I don't care. Whatever you want to do. All right, now for the game apart. Every time I say palace, that's going to be a single shot. And every time I say Munich, that's going to be a double shot. All right, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma and the story of a wicked, evil-eyed dancer who brought down a king. That's right, this is how a Bavarian king's obsession with beautiful women, including the infamous actress Lola Montez, cost him his throne. So, let's jump in head first, my heathens. Of the innumerable palaces that dot the Bavarian lands, few are as bizarre and delightful as the Nymphenburg Palace in Munich. Situated on what was once the western outskirts of the city, the palace was begun in 1664 and expanded and redecorated for two centuries. Think about that for just a second. Two hundred years. Mm, Love it. It is dominated by, well, for lack of a better description, a stretched out cubic Italianate edifice, which is in turn flanked by wings that are capped by smaller cubes. Pyramid roofs of red-orange top each of these cubes, contrasting nicely with the cream and periwinkle gray walls. 
Its Baroque grounds are famed for its swans, as well as the show-stopping Amelienberg Hall of Mirrors. The Rococo and neoclassical interior is no less stunning, most notably in the lavish Great Hall. This Baroque palace in the west part of Munich was the summer residence of the Bavarian monarchs. Five generations of Wittelsbach rulers were involved in the construction of this stately ensemble, which houses several outstanding collections. With its lavishly decorated interior and the famous Gallery of Beauties, commissioned by Ludwig I, the palace is one of Munich's favorite attractions. Among the highlights are the former bedroom of King Ludwig II and the impressive banquet hall with fine ceiling frescoes by Johann Baptist Zimmermann. The Nymphenburg Palace west of Munich is one of the largest royal palaces in Europe and is not to be missed on a sightseeing tour through the Bavarian capital city. The oft-visited Baroque tourist attraction with its expansive landscaped garden and museum draws not only guests from around the world, but is also a beloved institution for Munich residents. In 1664, Prince Ferdinand Maria had the castle built as a present to his wife, who had borne him the long-awaited heir, Max Emanuel. Max Emanuel himself later pay, played a significant role in expanding the palace layout. For many years, the palace buildings were used by the Wittelsbachs as a summer residence. Some spaces have their original Baroque decor intact, while others were later remodeled in Rococo and classical styles. Prominent architects like Giovanni Antonio, Antonio Viscardi, Leo von Klins, and Francois de Souvilles were involved in the expansions. The latter created the Sternenand Saal, or the Great Hall, in which Johann Baptist Zimmermann designed the central ceiling fresco, just two of the many additional attractions at Nymphenburg Palace. Also worth seeing are Ludwig I's Gallery of Beauties and the chamber where King Ludwig II was actually born. The palace itself houses the Museum Minch, Und Natur, which means Museum of Man and Nature. Yeah, my mom had to tell me how to pronounce that one, so laugh away. The Porcelana Museum, which is the Porcelain Museum, for the on-site porcelain manufacturer, Nymphenburg, and the Marstall Museum in its wings. In the expansive Palace Park, vis visitors can discover numerous other smaller attractions, in addition to the Badenburg, Pagodenburg, and Amelienburg summer residences, as well as the Magdaleneklause Hermitage, the 299-hectare large landscape garden also offers additional architectural gems, hidden sculptures, and picturesque streams and lakes. Sounds serene, doesn't it? Henriette Adelaide of Savoy, the wife of the Bavarian elector Ferdinand Maria, was given an impressive gift to celebrate the birth of her son. After ten years of marriage, the couple still hadn't produced an heir to the throne, but the luck of the royal couple was about to change. And in 1662, the long-awaited heir Maximilian Emmanuel was born. 
Ferdinand Maria was overjoyed and made a present to his wife, land on which she could build a beautiful palace. At that time, the property was not in the city of Munich, as it is today, but was removed in the tranquil countryside. In 1664, the construction of Borgo della Ninfe began, supervised by the Italian architect Agostino Barelli. In 1679, the construction was coming to its end, and Henriette Adelaide was very pleased with the final result. The design of the newly built residence was influenced by the style of Italian villas, and to complete the estate, a small symmetrical garden was added. The couple used this as their summer residence. However, the residence did not remain in its original form for long. When Max Emanuel started his reign, he decided to enlarge not only the residence, but also its gardens. In 1701, he commissioned the architect Henrico Zucali to build additionally two wings. The new design of the garden in a French formal style was entrusted to Charles Carbonet. He was a student of André Le Nôtre, the landscape architect who created the park at the Palace of Versailles. But construction had to be stopped in 1704 because the Spanish War of Succession erupted and Max Emmanuel had to leave Bavaria to join the troops in the battlefield. After 11 years, he returned home, but not alone. Max Emmanuel was determined to finish the construction of his Baroque palace, and for this purpose, he brought with him many craftsmen, painters, sculptors, and other artists from France. However, local artists were not excluded from the project. Their work is well preserved in the interior of the palace. Probably the most famous is the magnificent fresco of the Nymph, inspired by the name of the palace, meaning Castle of the Nymph, Schloss Nymphenburg. He also sought the advice of the famous architects such as Antonio Viscardi for the further alterations. Max Emmanuel didn't forget the gardens either and entrusted Dominique Girard, who co-worked with Viscardi, to expand them, adding the grand parterre, stables, and the pavilion known as Magdalena Clausa. Nowadays, ancient carriages used by the monarchs are displayed in the stables. Max Emmanuel's son, Emperor Charles VII, continued with the improvements of the palace. However, his most notable work is not in the palace, but in the gardens, designed by the French architect Francois Souvilles the Elder. Originally built as a hunting chateau, the Amelienburg remains one of the best examples of the Rococo style in Germany. The extension of the palace and its gardens seem to be nowhere near the end. Maximilian III, Joseph, remodeled the Grand Parterre and decorated the gardens with statues of Apollo, Hera, Poseidon, and other Greek gods and goddesses. He also lavishly decorated the Great Hall in the then-fashionable Rococo style. Karl Theodor opened the gardens to the public for the first time in 1792. At the beginning of the 19th century, Bavaria had become a kingdom, and the palace was an important residence of the monarchs. The then-elector Maximilian IV, Joseph, who is now the first king of Bavaria, known as Maximilian I Joseph, redesigned part of the interior in the neoclassical style. 
He wanted to turn the palace into a residence fit for a king, although by now it probably was. Then, when the English landscape garden became fashionable in Germany, Friedrich Ludwig Scale redesigned the gardens once again, replacing the geometrical forms with a more natural look. Finally, after centuries of construction, the palace was complete. Throughout the years, it has remained a favorite summer residence for the royals. King Maximilian I Joseph died at the palace, while his son King Ludwig II, mostly known for building the enchanting Neuschwastein Castle, was born here. Impressive frescoes and tapestries, stylish furniture, and magnificent chandeliers still decorate the rooms in the palace. The most unusual room, though, is the Gallery of Beauties. It includes 38 portraits of the most beautiful local women selected by Ludwig I, with all the efforts put in constant improvements. It's no surprise that Nymphenburg Palace is one of the most magnificent residences in Germany. But one room in particular should not be missed, as it is not only a unique window into the past, but holds within it a love affair that brought down a king. That's right, Ludwig's I's Gallery of Beauties. This otherwise unremarkable cream-colored room, dimly lit by crystal chandeliers, is the repository for three dozen portraits of women deemed exquisite beauties. The subjects were selected by none other than King Ludwig I himself. What sets this collection apart from the Hampton Court Beauties, the Windsor Beauties, or Max Emanuel's Gallery of Beauties, on the other side of Nymphenburg Palace, is not only the quality of portraits, but that these women were all social classes and contemporaries of Ludwig I. Ludwig I, like his grandson Ludwig II, considered himself a connoisseur of beauty. Godson and namesake to France Francis Louis the Sixteenth. He was born on August twenty fifth, seventeen eighty six, in Strasbourg. In eighteen ten, he was married to Therese of Saxe Hildenbergenhausen, and their wedding was the first Oktoberfest. In eighteen twenty five, he ascended to the throne. His reign would be notorious for his architectural and artistic legacy, as well as being marked throughout by civil unrest, which would eventually culminate in his abdication after the 1848 revolutions. It was Ludwig who gave the residence its famous facade, inspired by the Pitti Palace in Florence, and for dotting Munich with neoclassical buildings. His work there gave it the nickname of New Athens. After he abdicated, Ludwig would live for another 20 years, and his son Maximilian would assume the throne in Bavaria. His other son, Otto, would take the newly created one in Greece. But his obsession with beauty was not merely relegated to the fine arts. In Ludwig's time, as if he actually needed an excuse, beauty was considered a reflection of inward moral purity and so there was some justification for being a wealthy king collecting portraits of beautiful women. From 1827 until 1850, the court painter Joseph Styler painted 36 portraits, one of which was lost. In 1861, the painter Frederick Dürk added two more. 
The two most famous are the Schön Munchenerin, or the Beauty of Munich, Helene Seldemer, and the infamous Lola Montes. Seldemer, who was a shoemaker's daughter, came to symbolize the ideal Bavarian beauty. Montes, however, was one of the 19th century's most intoxicating and curious figures. She was born Eliza Rosanna Gilbert in Ireland in 1821. She then went with her parents to India as an infant, as her father, a captain in the army, had been ordered there. However, a couple of years in, her father died of cholera. And for the next decade, Gilbert would grow up all over, spending significant parts of her formative years in Scotland, London, Paris, and Bath. Her scandalous life began at the tender age of 14, when she found out that she had been betrothed to a wealthy nabob in India, and instead eloped with a soldier and became Mrs. James. Sadly for Gilbert, when her new husband was sent to India, he deserted her and eloped with another woman. Lola then returned to Calcutta to her mother, where she was reportedly kept locked up. Upon her return to Europe shortly thereafter, she took to the stage with the intention of becoming a dancer, and her first few performances were a great success. Her mother chose to regard her as dead from the moment she stepped on the stage of Her Majesty's Theatre. But Gilbert, now known as Lola Montes, the Spanish dancer, went on to Paris where her interest in the stage waned as her interest in politics increased. She became engaged to the editor Alexandre de Gerrier, but he was killed in a duel just a few days before the wedding. Alexandre Dumas once said of her that, and I quote, she has the evil eye and is sure to bring bad luck to anyone who closely links his destiny with her, end quote. So Montez left town on a dancing tour. She strutted her way across Europe, wrote the historian Christopher McIntosh, causing riots in Warsaw, tangling with the police in Berlin, and having a love affair with Franz Liszt in Dresden. A woman after my own heart. In 1846, she arrived in Munich for the first time. As the New York Times put it in her obituary, she managed, to, she managed to seduce King Ludwig, a monarch who was willing to receive political consolation from lips so ruby. He was 61, she was 28. Shock among the nobility gave way to outright indignation and hostility, as many believed the king was also now under her sway politically. Ludwig, who had previously been a repressive monarch, not afraid to crack down hard on civil unrest, began to change his course. At the same time, Montez was given the title Baroness of Rostenhall and Countess of Lansfeld, and gifted a palace and pension of 20,000 florins a year. The king's cabinet resigned in response, and so Lola, as her enemies claimed, undeterred, went about selecting a new cabinet full of people from various socio-economic stations. The king even went so far as to make a Protestant the head of his ministry. In a twist likely to be jarring for the modern citizen, the students filling the classes at the University of Munich were right-wing and ultra-Catholic, and therefore strongly opposed to the king's new moves. 
During one of the riots, Lola marched out in front of the protesters and defended herself with a riding whip. Again, a girl after my own heart. In another, the king and Lola were attacked by university students and nearly pulled from their carriage. In response, the king shut down the university, which sparked a revolution. The king, tired of fighting the opposition, abdicated in favor of his son and left the monarchy weakened. In an attempt to calm the public, the king also banished Lola, and she fled disguised as a peasant. Montez would continue a life of scandal and fame, as her next romance did end in marriage, but was blown up when it was discovered the soldier she'd previously eloped with was, well, still alive, and she was going to be sued for bigamy. She eventually made her way to the United States, where she made her mark everywhere from New Orleans to California, where she, well, married and divorced yet again. Before spending her final years in New York giving lectures, Montez managed to fit in a trip to Australia where she performed with success, or so, so claimed the New York Times. But while Montez is surely the juiciest of the stories that fill Ludwig's Wall of Beauties, she's not the only interesting one. Auguste Strobel was the daughter of Ludwig's chief accountant. Hair filled with gold-trimmed red ribbons, she gazes back at the viewer with startling blue eyes that explain why Ludwig made her the object of many of his numerous and often ridiculed poems. The, por the portrait that currently hangs in the hall was reportedly the second made of her, as Ludwig didn't like her neck in the first. Charlotte von Hogged was another actress called The Concubine of Two Kings by Franz Liszt. Multiple religions were represented in the Hall of Beauties. Nanette Kaula, for instance, was the daughter of a Jewish court agent and is dressed in a striking green velvet dress. Daughters of a meat dealer, Anna Hilmaya, Ludwig's daughter-in-law, Marie, Crown Prince of Bavaria, his half-sister, Princess Sophie of Bavaria, and his daughter Alexandra are all included. So is Lady Jane Digby, the English aristocrat who had affairs with Ludwig I, his son Otto of Greece, and Felix Schwarzenberg, and died in Syria as the wife of an Arab sheik, 20 years younger than herself. Some women, like Mariana Marquesa Florenzi, were more than mere beauties. Mariana was a literary and intellectual icon of the 19th century, known for her translations of major works and promoting Northern European philosophers in Italy. Perhaps the most intriguing, though, is Katarina Botsaris, a Greek woman from Ionina, whose father was a well-known Greek military leader who died fighting for Greek independence from the Ottomans. While standing in the room, looking from portrait to portrait, and, well, furiously googling each name to discover their stories, it's hard to know whether or not one should appreciate or be disturbed by the scene. The collection, which is now ironically housed in a room next to what was the Queen's Apartments, was open to the public during Ludwig's reign, allowing the public to compare itself to these lofty beauties who were clearly being objectified. But there is also something touching about yet another idealistic Bavarian king channeling his obsession with beauty into such a specific and unique undertaking.
And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of the episode. And I thank you for joining me here again today. I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, or you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line. I do respond to every single email. And on that note, that is all the time that we have for today. I thank you for joining me on Renegade Talk Radio, and don't forget to tune in next time, my darlings. I love you, heathens. Mwah! We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.